Thank you, Meredith. His grace does amaze me. I'm hoping it amazes you all. Normally, when I begin my sermons, I pray my own prayers. This morning, I was compelled to pray a prayer of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's, so I will be opening with that prayer. O God, early in the morning, I cry to you. Help me to pray and to concentrate my thoughts on you. I cannot do this alone. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Restore me to liberty and enable me to live now, that I may answer before you and before me. Lord, whatever this day may bring, your name be praised. And I just pray that my sermon is the words of the Lord and not my own. Pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, last week I preached the sermon Shift, the Shift series. The goal of the Shift series was to move us from focusing on church structure to focusing our attention on being missional Christians, making known the manifold wisdom of God in an effort to heal the nations by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The following week, I thought it would be necessary to make sure we are all on the same page when it comes to the knowledge of God, shifting from the ever-popular devotional understanding of God to a contextual understanding where we can grasp the whole story. Many people run the risk of creating a God in the, of their own image rather than allowing the scriptures to formulate their view. And finally, last week, I sought to shift from a clergy-led institution to the priesthood of believers, as I, have, as I had you all put on paper collars, symbolizing your ordination, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. I enjoyed the imagery and the fun we had during the shift series, and I did it with an intention. I hope you all have allowed the implication of each week's shift to remain in your mind, and hopefully the fun will remind you of those things. Today, before we launch our new series next week, I wanted to talk a bit about what is the primal essence of Christianity. Mark Batterson wrote a book that deals with this topic. It's called Primal. And in it he says, Many Christians settle for simplicity on the near side of complexity. Their faith is only mind deep. They know what they believe, but they don't know why they believe what they believe. Their faith is fragile because it has never been tested intellectually or experientially. I say this after I spent my Friday morning speaking or preaching the gospel on the streets, praying with people as they waited to receive food from the Lighthouse Mission. In the thick of life, meeting people along the way. I preached that morning about the abundant life that is found in and through Jesus Christ. This has been a focal point of mine for years. And I'm telling you I could prove that because I have blogs that you can look back all the way to 2008. The key thing is that I believe that abundant life is not found in a half-hearted faith. It's not found in a faith that is only mind deep. It's not found in a faith that you have made up or that what might seem right to you. It's found in an active pursuit of following Jesus Christ, learning his teachings, growing in his grace. We talked about this a bit in our Wednesday night Bible study. What does it mean to call oneself a Christian? Christianus sum, Latin for I am a Christian, were the last words spoken by many Christian martyrs. That alone should tell us to call oneself a Christian is a privilege. To be identified by that title is something to walk worthy of. It's more than what we would call easy believism. 
I don't care how popular it is for people to believe that, well, I confessed Jesus and I repented of my sins and therefore I'm going to heaven so I have the right to call myself a Christian. No. And honestly, it's a form of spitting in the face of Jesus when we do that. That is not Christianity. Sadly, this is what many have come to believe is Christianity. Christianity is devotion to following the teachings of Jesus Christ, putting them into practice in each and every day of our life. That's besides all the error that surrounds what has been taught as the teachings of Jesus Christ. It is vital that we as the body of Christ, which is called to represent Jesus Christ to the world, have a solid understanding of what it means to be a Christian and ultimately what the cause of Christianity is, the primal essence, so to speak. Many Christians fail to understand the gospel message, and with this lack of understanding, it is not too difficult to understand how and why they misinterpret what biblical Christianity is. Think of all the different images that come to mind when people hear of Christianity. Alan Hirsch, a favorite missional leader of mine, he wrote a book about this topic called Read Jesus, wherein he explains how people need to reform, redo, and reanalyze what they think of Jesus and his teachings. Many have made a different Jesus, a Jesus in their own image. I'm fond of saying, and I have a YouTube video about it, that I follow Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. Not Jesus, the anti-gay protester. Not Jesus, the politically correct nice guy. And definitely not Jesus or Jesus from Brooklyn. It's funny, yet I'm making light of a serious error in the body of Christ. Don't forget Che Guevara, Jesus. I read the following quote yesterday. Your focus determines your reality. I couldn't have said it better. But what happens when we have a bunch of so-called Christians who are focusing on a false Jesus? A false, distorted message at that. I can personally tell you from experience that I have sat in some churches and have conversated, conversed, with some Christians, not to mention overhearing Christian conversations that seem so far away from the teachings of Jesus Christ what we read in scripture, that is. Their focus is off, their reality is off. I've had those moments where I question, is this really what Christianity is? I began the shift series talking about the book of Joshua and how Joshua was leading the people in to take possession of the land. I utilize that as an allegory for what I and many others see happening on Long Island. I want to take time to... Think about the history of Joshua. Think about, put yourself in that time today. Obviously, to emphasize the truth of what Winston Churchill once said, the farther backward you look, the further forward you're likely to see. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it starts out with Moses saying the following, and if you would like to follow, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'll give you a page number in one moment. It's going to be page 188, and we're going to start at verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. 
For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that God has, their God is so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourselves and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Did you catch the reasoning behind why he was giving them the laws and statutes? In verse 1 it was, so that you, speaking to Israel, may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And then in verse 6, it says, Israel was to keep the laws and statutes because these statutes would, lead, would be their wisdom and their understanding in the sight of the people who would hear all these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation and is a wise and understanding people. So it would be for them to enter the land, and it would be for others to see the wisdom and the understanding of the people of God. Now if you will turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is one page over, 191. I'm going to start at verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandsons might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and, you may, and your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any other gods of the peoples who surround you, For the Lord your God is in the the midst of you as a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimony and his statutes, which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers." By driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord brought us from from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in. To give us the land which he had sworn from our fathers. 
So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. Here we see a couple reasons for the commandments. You have in verse 2, the laws are being issued so that your sons might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and your days may be prolonged. Then in verse 3 we read, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So in chapter 6, it appears it's more about the people's relationship with God, their fear of the Lord, his blessings upon them, as they follow his laws and statutes. Next we read what is referred to as the Shema, which is the central prayer in the Jewish prayer book and is looked at as a firm affirmation of the faith. Again, we'll read verses 4 through 9 in chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorposts and of your house and on your gates. If you continue reading, you'll notice these words are to serve as a reminder of what God had done when he brought them out of Egypt. As verse 25 says, it was counted to them as righteousness if they followed all that he commanded them to do. For Israel, this love of God would help them fulfill God's mission of conquering and possessing the promised land. And God's promise to Abraham, he would make Israel into a mighty nation and would bless her and other nations would see it. Similarly, today, our following of God through Jesus Christ leads us to be conquerors, possessing a promise of abundant life and eternal life. God has made us into a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that we might declare his praises, as we discussed last week. But the question must be asked, what does it mean to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength? When Jesus was asked about the law, he responded, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This, and second is this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Loving God with all your heart is allowing the things that burden God to break your heart. We know that the Father sent his Son to die for his people. Therefore, God's people are his primary love, his bride, his chosen possession. And God desires that all men come to him. Loving God with all your soul is allowing God to be hallowed above all things. For him being alive in the depths of your heart. Him being the awe and the wonder of your world. Loving God with all your soul. And for you to allow the continual opportunity to see God in all his glory. What if... Every time we came across a verse that told us to do something, we thoughtfully prayed and prayerfully figured out a way to translate it with our lives. What if we consistently, creatively, and courageously acted on each verse in the scriptures that commanded us to do something? What if we turned every verse into a holy experiment? For those of us that are going through B90X, 
This will allow you to uh, creatively go through the whole Bible in 90 days and find ways to act on those verses that command you to do something. And granted, in the Old Testament, you're going to have a bit of an interesting time trying to translate some of those. There's some books about people that have tried to do that. But think about how we can actually live this out creatively. That's our call. How can we express the gospel creatively to the world in a way that is compelling them to come to Christ? Loving God with all your mind, I would say the main thing would be, are you willing to let God be true and every man a liar? Are you allowing God's truth to be truth, not your truth to be truth? That's what I sought to demonstrate through our shift series here. Are you willing to shift when your view is not in line with God's? Yes, I'm talking about everything. Your theology, your worldview, your political stance, the way you treat the guy next door to you, everything. The way you drive, possibly. I'm an angry driver, so I guess my uh, Jesus would be my, my model that I have to learn how to uh, stand up to. Also, loving God with all your mind means making the most of your mind by learning everything you possibly can. When you stop learning, you stop loving. You ask why, right? What is the, why do you say that? Because loving is learning more about the one you love. Picture me saying, I love my wife, but I don't really want to learn anything else about her. I just, at this point, I know enough. I would rather not continue to grow in uh, learning more about her. <laughs> I believe many people get stuck in this rut in their relationship with others and with God. They don't want to know any more. Albert Einstein expressed loving God with all our mind quite well. He said this, The important thing is to not stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. One cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. As many of you may have had the opportunity to realize, I pride myself on getting people to think. I like to challenge people. I like to throw things out there that will just kind of make you think about the deeper things. A main reason is a challenge I read in a book written by Mark Batterson a while back. What if we stopped force-feeding answers and learned to unleash the primal curiosity in our congregations? I thought that was an interesting quote. Loving God with all your strength, it is my view that Teddy Roosevelt said it best. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by the dust, sweat, and blood, who strives valiantly, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows, in the end, the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least failed by daring greatly. Utilizing our strengths in an attitude of service, service and sacrifice models Jesus' style of ministry. Many people get caught in the attitude of overanalysis, you know, that don't work attitude, which always results in spiritual paralysis. The Greek word for strength, dynami, is defined as the antithesis of apathy, provoking us to have a why not approach to life. Why won't it work? Why should I not go and speak to that person? Why should I not just knock on my neighbor's door and say hello this morning? Something so simple. Many people have uh, decided that it's easier to say, no, that won't work, and it create excuses for doing nothing. Serving God with enthusiasm is necessary. 
Sure enough, the word enthusiasm comes from the combination of two Greek words, en theos, which means in God. Therefore, enthusiasm should be best displayed by those of us who define ourselves as being in God. We are called to be the salt and light of the world. We cannot afford to not love God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength and take the time to love our neighbors, to actually be in the world, not in church buildings. Church buildings is just the beginning because the revolution won't start here. Christianity will not change the world from in here. This is where we provoke one another to good works. We provoke one another to go out there. We encourage one another. We meet weekly to say, you've been out there doing the same thing, I understand. We're trying to get the world to see that Christ is the answer, that the church, the body of Christ, has the solutions. The second part of Jesus' comment on the law is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In the book of James, this is called the royal law, in which James says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. You are doing well. As Christians, we are called to a life of service. I don't believe this is something that should be forced upon every person. Instead, I make it my business to tell all men that life is found when you die, when you die to yourself and you allow Christ to live through you. If Jesus is living through you, it's not a matter of what you want to do, what you don't want to do. It's simply that's what Christ does. Christ loves the world. So Christ is going to go out through you. He's going to love on the world. He's going to heal the world. No room for, I don't want to do that, or I don't think that I should do that. It's, it's Jesus living through you. Amen? This is how abundant life is found in and through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ is living in and through you, you are in joy because Jesus is living through you. That the eternal life, life itself, is living through you. That you have given yourself to Christ. Gandhi once remarked, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. I could go for that. When Jesus began to speak about those who would inherit the kingdom of God, he said, and I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to start reading at verse 34. And it's going to be on page 988. Then the king will say, at verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, and gave you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he, said, he will answer them, 
Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Throughout the scriptures, this is continually expounded upon. Jesus says to, the, says to do good deeds in secret, reminds the disciples that even the pagans love those who do good to them and love them. But they are called to be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus reminds his disciples that they are those who, that those who seek to be great must become servants. The first shall be last. If you give, you shall receive. And ultimately is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And all of this is besides the fact that judgment is declared to repay everyone for what they have done, whether good or bad. All that said, I have sought to lay before you the essence of Christianity. But let me express where it all starts. Because it's not in and of yourself. It's not something, it's not a works message. It all starts at prayer. Prayer is the energy behind the action. As a wise Christian once said, the impact God has planned for us doesn't occur when we're pursuing impact. It occurs when we're pursuing God. As Jesus said, the first and foremost, hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Yes, that is first and foremost. It has been said that discipleship is loving God first and foremost, and loving everything else in light of that. I have learned the greatest way to serve God and to give him honor is to pray as if everything relies on him and to work as if everything relies on me. Prayer is a privileged thing. We discussed this in shift, that we are a priesthood who has the opportunity to go into the presence of the Lord. Us Christians covered by the righteousness of Christ have the opportunity to approach God, a God who only desires righteousness. Prayer is also the sign of our love and our faith in God taking time to praise and petition him with our requests. A couple of weeks ago, I came across this verse in Job, and it resonated deep for me. In Job chapter 42, verse 10, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Notice when the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, when he prayed for his friends. Imagine when a friend of yours comes with all sorts of life's issues, and you give them a simple solution. Have you prayed for your friends? Start praying for your friends. That's it. Charles Spurgeon once said, When his soul began to expand itself in a holy and loving prayer for his erring brethren, the heart of God showed itself to him by returning to him his prosperity without and cheering his soul within. Much more eloquent than I. How about that as an admonishment to start praying for people? If you want... A victorious life, if you want an abundant life, you want your, your fortunes to be restored, start praying for your friends. I took that to heart. That verse alone makes it quite clear that there's a three-pronged relationship going on here. My connection with God is also contingent upon my relationship with others. Quite frankly, we exist for others. This is called intercessory prayer. When we pray on behalf of others, we are interceding for them. I believe if we want to see God do things in our lives, in our community, we must start praying for others. We here at Blue Point Bible Church are a praying church. We're a praying congregation. Every week we have prayers laid before us on behalf of our friends. Charles Spurgeon noted that he who has not a man to pray for him may write himself down as a hopeless, a hopeless character. Let us continue to find those who we as a royal priesthood can pray for. Amen? 
as my wife Q has been reading through Genesis in accordance with B90X, she told me the other night how the patriarchs of the faith prayed for everything. You have Abraham pleading with God for Saddam and Gomorrah. Samuel told the people, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Sinning against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. As we read in the first letter to Thessalonians, the admonishment to pray unceasingly. John Henry once said, when God intends a great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is set them a praying. Well, if that isn't a sure sign that God is ready to do something here at Blue Point Bible Church and on Long Island, we already have a prayer wall. We're organizing a prayer group. We're developing ideas for a prayer room and working on prayer times. Blue Point Bible Church is a praying church. I exhort, you, I exhort you all with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A Christian community either lives by the intercessory prayers for its members, for one another, or the community itself will be destroyed. I can no longer condemn or hate another Christian for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble they cause me. In intercessory prayer, the face that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into the face of one for whom Christ died, the face of a pardoned sinner. That is a blessed discovery for the Christian who is beginning to offer intercessory prayers for others. As far as we are concerned, there is no dislike, no personal tension, no disunity, or strife that cannot be overcome by intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is the purifying bath into which the individual and the community must enter every day. Let us live out the reality of what God is doing in and through us. That's our goal as Christians. That's the primal essence. Let God live through you. Let God inspire you to love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and to love others. But let us not forget James chapter 2, if you will. Turn with me to James chapter 2, verse 14. That will be on page 1208. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has not works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being by itself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let us continue to realize that the essence of Christianity, Lord, is to love you with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, Lord God, and also to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Lord, let us to walk worthy of this, to continue to admonish ourselves to live as Christians, to see the privilege we have to call ourselves a Christian, a follower of you covered by your righteousness, Lord, that we might be a people prepared to do good works, that we might offer the gospel as the healing of the nations, Lord. Let us continue to walk worthy. I pray for each and every one of us here today that we would recognize it is by your grace that we have the opportunity to walk worthy of following you. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.